Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke. This morning we're beginning a new series as we go through the Gospel of Luke. We'll begin it this morning. Next week, uh, Ben is going to be bringing God's Word to us from the book of Haggai, and so looking forward to that. And then the week following that, we'll be back in the Gospel of Luke and continuing Luke through, through Christmas and, uh, Lord willing, beyond. So I'm very excited about that opportunity for our, our church as we begin this, this new series on the Gospel of Luke. Well, if you would, please stand with me as we read Luke chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4, and I'll be reading from a, a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Luke begins his gospel account this way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. May God bless us according to his word this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this new book that we're beginning as a church. And Father, we thank you for your son Jesus who is revealed to us in it. We pray that you would help us to understand him more fully. Father, we thank you again for the many blessings that you've given us as we celebrate our Feast of Thanks this afternoon. We, we think of all the things you've done in our church, and certainly a few are, are more exciting, more precious than the, the gift of children. And so we thank you for those, those parents, again, who have their, had their children dedicated this morning, themselves dedicated, and we pray that you'd give them the ability to sustain that commitment. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. The essence of idolatry is to fashion something for yourself and, and call it God, and, and also to, to place your affections upon something that, that is not God and affections that should be only reserved for God. That's kind of the heart, the, the essence of idolatry, calling something God that is not God or giving your affections to something that is not God affections that should be reserved only for God. It's the heart of idolatry. When it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, we've been practicing idolatry since the, the very beginning of Christianity. Humanity has practiced idolatry since, since the fall, constantly fashioning for ourselves gods, calling them gods, those that are not gods. We've also practiced a form of idolatry with the person of Jesus Christ uh, since the very early days of Christianity. Uh, fashioning for ourselves understandings of Christ that are not in accordance with who he really is. Even in Jesus' ministry, he was constantly having to, to caution people, say, no, you, you don't understand who I am. You're creating a, a false version of me. It was an idolatrous version. It was true in the first century as Jesus did his ministry. It was something that the early church fathers struggled against, and it's something that exists in our own culture today as well. If you look across the, the spectrum of our culture today, you'll see that, that many groups have fashioned for themselves versions of Jesus. So, for example, 
Muslims have a view of Jesus. In the Muslim view of Jesus, he's a, he's a great guy, a, a wonderful prophet, but he's not God. There's a very interesting section of, in the Quran that describes the Jesus that, that Muslims have kind of fashioned for themselves. It's a, a scene in which some people are reviling Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she's holding the baby Jesus in her arms. And in this section of the, of the Quran, the, the baby Jesus begins to speak. And the baby Jesus says this, he says, I am indeed a servant of God. He hath given me revelation and made me a prophet. And he hath made me blessed wherever, wheresoever I be. He hath made me kind to my mother and not overbearing or miserable. But then in a few verses later of the Quran, says this, but it's not befitting to the majesty of God that he should beget a son. And so the, the Muslim Jesus, the Jesus that Muslims have, have fashioned for themselves is a, is a nice guy, great prophet, kind to his mom, but not the Son of God, very clearly. And so the question that we need to honestly ask ourselves is, is what's wrong with that Jesus? What makes that Jesus any inferior to, to the Jesus that, that we believe in? What makes that Jesus less valid? Mormons have fashioned a Jesus for themselves as well. The Mormon faith, Jesus, again, a great guy, prophet, and yet not God from eternity past. And because he's not God from eternity past, we can attain his deity, we can become like him. He's like our older brother in the Mormon faith, and his, his death on the cross, his death on the cross is not sufficient to cleanse us from all our sins. That's the Mormon Jesus. That's the Jesus that they have fashioned for themselves. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is what's wrong with that Jesus? What makes our Jesus more legitimate than the Mormon Jesus? It's a Jesus they've fashioned for themselves. There's other Jesuses out there as well. And there's one Jesus that I call a conspiracy theory Jesus, okay? This is the Jesus in our, in our popular culture. Many academics hold to conspiracy theory Jesus. Whenever you read a, a Time magazine or a Newsweek magazine article on Jesus, that's conspiracy theory Jesus. You also see conspiracy theory Jesus in uh, books like the Da Vinci Code. There's a section of the Da Vinci Code that describes the conspiracy theory Jesus well. There's a professor talking this in the scene, and he's talking to two other characters, and this professor says this. He says, look, the, the gospel accounts weren't delivered to us by God. They were made up by man. He said, at the time that these four gospel accounts were decided as the gospel accounts, uh, 80 other gospels were suppressed. Other gospels that had equal validity to describing the life of Jesus. And so conspiracy theory Jesus, people who, have this, who advocate this view, that they believe that, that the, the church kind of strong-armed this perception of Jesus and kind of al didn't allow these other Jesuses to have equal weight. That's conspiracy theory, Jesus. And you see what they're doing is they're kind of a two-pronged attack. On one hand, they're attacking the, the Jesus of the Gospels. There's a very interesting group of scholars uh, call themselves the Jesus Seminar. I think it's important to spend a few minutes talking about conspiracy theory, Jesus, because he's so prominent in our culture. But these a group of scholars that are involved in, in the Jesus Seminar, what they've done is this. They've, they've gone through the four gospel accounts, and they've taken every word of Jesus, and they've, they've decided whether they think he really said it or didn't say it. And they'll assign it a color. If they give it a red, it means they believe he truly said it. If they give it a, a pink color, it means he might have said it. If they give it a gray color, it means he probably did not say it. Black means he definitely did not say it. 
how much of you do you think of Jesus' words in the Gospels make it through the Jesus Seminar? Less than 20%. Over 50% they believe he, he definitely didn't say. And they attack this, the, the Gospel Jesus this way. They say things like, well, and their, their presuppositions really come through in this. They say, well, uh, anytime Jesus refers to himself and gives himself characteristics of God, that couldn't have been legitimate. So, for example, whenever Jesus uses the phrase, son of man, they'll say, we don't find contemporary uses of that phrase, son of man, so we don't think that Jesus really said son of man to describe himself when he's talking about having attributes of deity. But if he uses the phrase son of man and talks about his characteristics as a human being, they, they let that through, right? <laughs> so it's very much driven by their own bias concerning who they want Jesus to be. That's one prong of the conspiracy theory Jesus' uh, advocacy. The other prong of their attack comes whenever they, they raise up the Jesus of these so-called hidden gospels, or I use the term heretical gospels. And what, as, you, as they talk about these other gospel accounts of Jesus' life, like the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Judas, they're really drawn to that Jesus because he's the type of Jesus that they desire Jesus to be. Ellen Pagels is a, a scholar that works with these so-called hidden gospels, and she says, look, I don't like orthodoxy because orthodoxy makes decisions for me. It mistrusts my ability to make decisions. I like the Jesus in these hidden gospels because he invites me to make decisions for myself. One scholar, Harold Bloom, put it this way. He says, look, the, quite frankly, the gospel of Thomas and the Jesus in the gospel of Thomas speaks to me and to many others, Gentile and Jewish, in ways that Matthew Luke and John certainly do not. And so you have the conspiracy theory Jesus people who say, look, you know what? I don't like the Jesus in the Gospels, so I'm going to fashion this, this Jesus that's in accordance with what I like. I see that other people in these uh, hidden Gospels or heretical Gospels kind of describe them the same way. So that's the Jesus I'm going to fashion for myself. And the question, believers, we have to ask for ourselves, again, is what's wrong with that Jesus? What makes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John any better than the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas? What's wrong with that Jesus? And, and perhaps this morning, even as I ask that question, I kind of hope this is true, there's kind of a recoiling within you. How could you even ask what's wrong with that Jesus? But let me suggest this to you. It's not just the Mormon, it's not just the Muslim, it's not just the, some people within the academic community that have fashioned fake Jesuses for themselves, that have an idolatrous view of Jesus. Let me suggest to you that we in the church are also guilty of fashioning the type of Jesus that we desire to worship. Within the American church, there's also vending machine Jesus, right? I'm going to pray and, and ask Jesus for what I want, in, in my name, and, and he's going to give it to me. I, I pray, and he has to answer. I'm not concerned with all the other things he teaches, but I understand prayer. I want things I pray to Jesus. Or there's pluralism Jesus in our culture today. Pluralism Jesus is, hey, Jesus is my way, but I kind of like all other religions as well, and, and maybe Jesus is kind of like the, the culmination of all other religions. And so I'm going to worship Jesus, but I, I'm not going to pay attention to those parts where he talks about his, him being the only way pluralism Jesus. There's many types of Jesuses that we in the evangelical church worship. Some of us are very excited about social justice Jesus. 
We want a, a Jesus that takes care of the orphan and the poor, but we're not too interested in what this Jesus says about sin and, and holiness and repentance. Or we are this evangel- have this vision of evangelical Jesus, and, and this, this vision of evangelical Jesus, this, this Jesus hates gay marriage, he, he hates abortion, but he is strangely silent when it comes to issues like materialism. And so we are embracing this, this, this Jesus that, that hates all these, these evils in society, and yet this Jesus, this Jesus that we fashion for ourselves, doesn't speak boldly about the danger of having one foot in the world and trying to keep one foot in our relationship with God. We've fashioned Jesuses for ourselves that are in accordance with our own desires, and what I pray happens as we go through the Gospel of Luke is that your world gets shook up a little bit. And you come face to face, head to head, with the Jesus in Scripture, and you see him, and you read him, and you see him say some things, and you're like, I don't know what to do with that. That kind of goes against my preconceived notions of who Jesus is. Why would Jesus say something like that? My evangelical Jesus doesn't believe what that Jesus believes. And my hope and my prayers as we come to this Jesus, you become enthralled and excited by this Jesus as revealed in the Gospels and specifically the Gospel of Luke. And you have a passion for this Jesus and say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with some of these things that this Jesus teaches, but I'm being forced, I'm being forced to decide to worship him and not my idolatrous view of who Christ is. Now here's the obvious question that I've asked several times. Why this Jesus? Why this Jesus in the Gospel of Luke? Why not the Mormon Jesus? Why not the Muslim Jesus? Why not the the Jesus of some within the academic community? Why not the Jesus we're kind of already comfortable with? (laughs) This morning as we look at these four verses and introduce the Gospel of Luke, we're going to answer that question. Why study Jesus in the Gospel of Luke? Let's look at the first reason. If you're taking notes, you'll see that on the back of your or in the insert of your, your bulletin there. The first reason that I believe that we need to study Luke's gospel is because Luke's gospel understands the importance of Jesus' life. Luke's gospel has a grasp of how central the story of Jesus is. Look at verse 1 again with me. Luke says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished, among us. Uh, we see the importance of Jesus' life in, in several ways. First of all, we see the importance of Jesus' life in the way that others have responded to the message of Jesus. We believe that Luke is writing here sometime between 60 and 70 AD, and he says, look, as I write these things, I'm not the first guy to sit down and, and write these things down. Others have compiled a narrative, and perhaps there he's, he's talking about people that have written some things down. Perhaps he's talking about oral history. He says, look, I'm not the first guy to realize that Jesus' life is a very important life to understand. Other people have have come before me and and understood how important this life is. We also see its importance in this. He says, look, these are things that have been accomplished among us. These are things that have have taken place and, and something has been accomplished. What's been accomplished? Well, before I answer that, let me just remind you about a little bit about Luke and his gospel. It's important to see the gospel of Luke not just as a book that stands on its own. First of all, it stands in the context of the other gospels, and we've already talked a little bit about that. But the gospel of Luke is 
volume one of a two-volume series. The second volume that Luke writes that's found in Scripture is the book of Acts. It's important to see Luke and Acts as two volumes of the same work. And as you look at the story of Luke and Acts put together, you see what Luke is talking about when he says some things have been accomplished among us. He's talking about the salvation that God has offered Jew and Gentile through the work of Jesus Christ. And so in the Gospel of Luke, it's going to begin with the story of of Jesus' birth and John the Baptist's birth. He's going to tell us things that no other Gospel account tells us about the birth of Jesus Christ. Then, in Luke, he's going to talk about Jesus' early ministry. He's going to talk about Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and then something very profound is going to happen. Jesus is going to say, let's head to Jerusalem. And then all throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see Jesus headed toward Jerusalem. And what's going to happen in Jerusalem? The cross. All throughout the Gospel narrative, as you get toward his road toward Jerusalem, Luke is constantly pointing you to the cross, pointing you to the cross, pointing you to the cross, and then the cross happens. Jesus is resurrected, and then you have the book of Acts. And what happens in the book of Acts? Well, the book of Acts talks about that message of Jesus, that event of the cross, and how it it affects Jew, and then how it affects Gentile. So Luke takes our focus, draws it to Jerusalem. Acts takes that message of the gospel from Jerusalem to the remotest parts of the earth. Luke understands the centrality of the cross, the importance of Jesus' life. He understands that the cross was a watershed moment in the history of humanity. And at the cross, something so profound happened that everything before the cross changed and everything after the cross changed and he draws our attention to the cross the importance of Jesus's life and forces us to think about that event upon which the entire span of human history hinges a watershed moment if you're a parent you probably have experienced some some watershed moments moments where everything changes. When our first child was born, it was a beautiful little girl. Uh, We've we've been parents for a relatively short time, eight and a half years uh, now. And uh, once uh, Hannah got to be a certain age, uh, we realized, you know, this diaper thing isn't going to work out forever. So I, I took a little bit of a gamble. I told Whitney, I said, Whitney, tell you what, I will potty train all the boys And you can potty train all the girls. And uh, here was my reasoning. Uh, We only have one kid right now, and it's a girl. I definitely get out of potty training this kid if we agree agree to that. And who knows if we're ever going to have any more. We could have all girls, and I never have to potty train a kid. If we have a boy, hey, free boy, okay? So it was a a win-win situation for me. And so I I agreed. uh, What do you agree? I'll potty train the girls that we have. You potty train uh, any boys to be named later. And we, lo and behold, the next two kids, boy, boy. All right. I realize, okay, I, I, need to, I need to do this. And so uh, it turns out, uh, now I don't like to brag, uh, but it turns out I, I have a gift. At, uh, <laughs> at least Whitney keeps telling me I have a gift. Maybe that's her little uh, gamble here. Uh, I, I have a gift at, at potty training children. Now, I'm not going to go into this gift uh, because um, 
I don't want to get in trouble because I'm not sure I've, everything I do is legal, but um, it's, it's effective. It's effective. In fact, um, if any of you need to have your children potty trained, if you make a pledge to the land campaign, we can take care of this. Um, where was I? Uh, potty training our, our children. I, I have this gift. And here's, I, I'm not going to describe the whole process, but the day begins uh, with, with great excitement and enthusiasm. And I, I take the children, uh, that, the, the child that's being potty trained, and we grab all their diapers, and I say, uh, no more. You're done with these. I am never putting another diaper on you again. And we take them, and we, 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 we store them somewhere, and we, we do, you're done with diapers. Watershed moment, Literally. Uh, in your life. It's over. It's past. I apologize. Uh, everything, everything changes at that moment. Now, now that's a mundane example, but, but every other example of a, of a major event in our, our life is mundane compared to the awesome message of the cross. Luke gets it. He understands the cross is a big deal. Listen to what he says just in the first couple chapters, a couple places. Uh, he's, he's talking to, to, to uh, John the Baptist's father, uh, Zechariah, and he says this about, about his ministry. He says his ministry is going to be to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He tells Mary, as he's, the, angel of the, Lord tell, uh, the angel of Gabriel tells Mary as he's talking to her, he says, look, uh, the child is going to be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Angels announce his birth. Simeon and Anna, the prophets, announce his birth. His birth is a big deal we're going to see in the first couple chapters, and as we continue through the gospel of Luke, the cross is a big deal. Luke gets it. Luke's gospel understands the importance, the vital importance of Jesus' life. It is a moment in human history from which there is no turning back, praise God. And our responsibility as we come to the gospel of Luke is to similarly understand the importance of Jesus' life. It is the application for you is that as we continue in the gospel of Luke, I'm not even going to, to guess how long, but as we continue in the gospel of Luke, you need to understand it is important, it is vitally important for you to understand the claims of of Christ and to consider his life carefully. Luke's gospel understands the importance of Jesus' life. A second reason that it's important to come to Luke's gospel to understand Jesus is this. Luke's gospel is passionate about the real Jesus. Luke's gospel is passionate about the real Jesus. Look at verse 2. He writes, Just as those who were from the beginning who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, that is, the things that have been accomplished, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We see here that Luke has a passion for the real Jesus. We see, first of all, his, his passion and his appreciation for these people in the past who've written about Jesus. He's appreciative to them, and he has respect for them because they were eyewitnesses of what they have seen. And, and so he has an appreciation for them because they were the people that actually were, were with Jesus. Luke was not with Jesus, but he was around people who were with Jesus. And as he's around these people, he has respect for those who were most able to communicate clearly 
who Jesus was. We also see that that Luke has a passion for the real Jesus because he is careful as he considers his sources. He says, look, I've, I've been around these people for a long time. I've followed all these things closely for some time past, and now my purpose is to write an orderly or a truthful account. This is extremely rare to see this type of language in literature of this time. Luke has a unique passion for understanding the true real Jesus. There's something else that's that's interesting here. In verse 2, he's talking about those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses, and then he uses this phrase that that I find very, very interesting. He says says that um, they were ministers of the word. They were ministers of the word. They were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. These people were with Jesus they saw his ministry firsthand, and then they took this message, they delivered it, and they were ministers to it. You see what he's saying? They were ministers. They were servants of it. They did not stand in authority over the message. They stood in authority under the message. Luke has the ability to communicate who the person of Jesus is because he was around people that understood who Jesus was. Interesting, as you read through the gospel, or the account of, of the, the church in the, the book of Acts, There are many sections where Luke switches from talking about people in the third person to talking about them in the first person. So they talk about they did this, they did this, and they'll say we did this. And so he's he's traveling along with the people when he's writing those we sections in the book of Acts. Luke also had access to to people, probably he had access to, well certainly had access to to Paul. We see that he was with Mark in the book of Philemon, they're they're referenced together. when he was in Jerusalem, he had access to the people that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15, the, the 500 people who saw the, the risen Lord. Uh, Luke is around a, a lot of good people that understood the message of Jesus. Another interesting thing to, to note here is that even though these, these people had this message delivered, they became ministers of it. They became subservient to it. Very often, it's easy for us as we think about a story or an event, to take that story and event and and use it to kind of drive our own agenda. So, for example, if you ever watch cable news television, okay, you see this all the time, right? Instead of reporting a story, the goal isn't necessarily to report a story. Uh, The goal is to report a story and and show how it fits into your agenda, right? Be it on the, the right or left oftentimes. Pew study just did a, a survey, and lo and behold, people who watch Fox News think that MSNBC is more biased, and people who watch MSNBC uh, cable news think that Fox is more biased. Okay? That's how we are. There's a, n- a new movie that came out Friday. I haven't seen it, so I can't recommend it. Uh, I've seen the trailer and, and watched it through tears. It's called The Blind Side, or Blind Side. It's a, it's a movie about a, a family who uh, adopts a uh, a student that, that's, uh, that becomes a, a football player. Okay? But it's very interesting to watch the, the bias of some people as they review this movie. And, and, the, and the, the couple is an evangelical Christian couple that brings this child into their home. And the, the, the reviewers are just kind of angry that, that this, it's like, they say it's like a, it's like a Disney movie. You know? it's, we want real stuff, and you, you whitewash these characters. Well, it's a true story, <laughs> it's what actually happened. Uh, so the complaint that it's not a real story reveals more of your bias in, in wanting a story that, 
that matches your vision of reality instead of reality itself. Now, we all do that, right? We all do that. We all have a desire to, to take a story and make it fit our agenda. Look at what Luke says. Look, these people became ministers of the word, and they delivered the word to us, not their agenda, not what they wanted us to believe about Jesus, but what Jesus actually did, what they saw him do with their own eyes. What is the application for us? As you and I come face to face with the Jesus and the gospel of Luke, we must commit this together. Commit this with me this morning. Say, you know what? I am not going to take the Jesus of the gospel of Luke and fashion him to fit my agenda. I'm going to be passionate, as Luke is passionate, to find the real Jesus. And when my Jesus that I've fashioned for myself, when I find that I'm wrong in my understanding of Jesus, I'm not going to, to twist the scripture to fit what I want it to say. I'm going to submit myself, become subservient to the text, and say, God, I'm going to believe what you tell me to believe. So, for example, when I come to, to Luke chapter 12, and I have this understanding about, my, about Jesus and, and peace and, and how he desires me to live in my family, and I come to Luke chapter 12, and I, I read what Jesus says about family. And we, in Luke chapter 12, when, he, when he's talking about uh, not peace but division, in verse 49, Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Verse 51, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. When I come to, to Jesus saying things like that, and I have this, this perception that, you know, Jesus doesn't want me to, to rock the boat. Jesus doesn't want there to be any division. So I'm going to be silent in my understanding of Jesus. And I read that. What am I going to do? What am I going to do with my preconception of who Jesus is? I'm going to say, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong. This is the Jesus that I want to follow. Show me how I need to be more bold in my family. It's very, very difficult very, very difficult to honestly assess our beliefs concerning Jesus. Why study Luke's gospel? Unlike these other conceptions that we talked about regarding the person of Jesus, Luke is passionate about the real Jesus. And the people that talked to Luke were passionate about the real Jesus. They became ministers of the word, not propagators of their own agendas. Third thing that I think is important for us to consider about why studying the, the Jesus, why study the Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is this. Luke's gospel offers a unique portrait of the Savior. Verse 3, Luke says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time to write an orderly account. Now, Luke is not disparaging the, pre- disparaging the previous accounts. He's not saying, you know, those eyewitnesses, they got it wrong. Let me tell you how it really was. But Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, I'm compelled to write a gospel account as as well. God has compelled me to to tell you certain things about Jesus' life that you need to know. As I mentioned already, Luke wrote two volumes, Luke and Acts, and Luke is the most prolific writer in the New Testament. It may surprise you. He he wrote more in terms of actual content, quantity, than even Paul. 
without Luke's account, there are things about Jesus that we, we simply would not know. He adds some, some original stories, and it's interesting the things that Luke doesn't tell us. You know, if I would have been Luke and I was compiling stories and I was maybe talking to Jesus' mother, I would say, hey, look, tell us about Joseph. I'm really curious, what happened to Joseph? When did he die? What, what, what happened to him? Tell me about Jesus' brothers. How did, they, how did they go from not believing in Jesus to being such staunch defenders of Jesus? Those are some things that I might have included, but that's not what the Holy Spirit told Luke to include. What are the things that the Holy Spirit did tell Luke to focus on? He says, Luke, I want you to focus on the, the story of Jesus as a savior of the outcast. And the savior of the outcast is our title of our message this morning, but really the title of our, our series as well. Over and over again, in the Gospel of Luke, you see that, that, that Jesus has, first of all, passion for the outcast. He has passion for those who are on the, the fringe of, of society, the, the hungry, the poor, the sick. They all receive special attention in the Gospel of Luke, the, the Gentile. In fact, Luke chapter 4, Jesus describes, his, this is his first, the first uh, thing we have of his, his public ministry. He goes into Nazareth, he goes into the synagogue, and he reads these words from the, the prophet Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The, the Jesus in the Gospel of Luke offers us a unique understanding of his message to the outcast, to the poor, to those on the, the edges, the, the fringes of society. In the Gospel of Luke, God offers salvation to all, but the people who respond to the salvation that God offers are not the self-righteous. They're not the wealthy. They're the people who realize their need for a Savior and respond in faith. If you were to be given a, a DVD movie, you would take it and take it and put it into your, your laptop and to watch that movie, you'd see an accurate representation of the movie, right? But if you were to take that same movie and to, to watch it in a theater, on the big screen with the surround sound, there would be a depth to that movie that you would be able to, to gain that you were not able to, to gain just watching it on a little laptop computer. The same is true with the person of Jesus. If you never read the Gospel of Luke but read the other biblical accounts of, of Jesus, you would have an absolutely 100% accurate perception of who he was. Nothing would be wrong in terms of what you believed about him. And yet the Gospel of Luke was given to us to add to our understanding, to give it a depth and a richness to the portrait of the Savior that God desires that we have. Finally, fourth thing here about Luke's Gospel as we think about why study it. Luke's gospel strengthens our relationship with Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 4 to Theophilus, who's he, he's writing this account in the gospel of Acts, in the book of Acts 2. He says, I've written these things that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Our assumption is that Theophilus was a person who had come into contact with Christian teaching and, and understood the basic principles of who Jesus was and this gospel, as he reads through that, is going to strengthen his understanding of who Jesus is, and as his right understanding of who Jesus is is strengthened, he grows in his certainty, and therefore he grows in his effectiveness in ministry. Same is true for you and me. As we come to the gospel of Luke, 
when we encounter the Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, it's going to strengthen our relationship with the Christ that we say that we love. Let me read to you a passage from the book of Isaiah. Close with, with this passage. So Isaiah 44 describes the, the process of idolatry. Isaiah says that all who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in, listen to this, the things that those who fashion idols delight in do not profit. They are not effective. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or who casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And then he describes the process of making an idol. An ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers. He works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out a line. He's talking again about the process of making an idol. He he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with, with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars here. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants the cedar and the the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He takes the the same material and he makes a, a fire with part of it and he makes a god with the other. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat he roasts and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, an idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, their hearts are so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and now I'm going to make the rest into an abomination. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself and say, is there not a lie in my right hand. I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters, you can keep your Muslim Jesus, you can keep your conspiracy theory Jesus, you can keep the idol of evangelical Christianity, where God forbid we have created an idol, and give me the Jesus of the Gospel of Luke. Give me the Jesus of Scripture, because that's the Jesus I desire to worship. I don't want to create a God in my own mind that can can design all sorts of other things. I want the God of Scripture to tell me about the person of Jesus Christ. And it is the person of Jesus Christ who came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for my sins, rose from the dead. It is that Jesus that I'm placing my trust and my faith alone in for my deliverance my salvation. It's that Jesus I desire to know more deeply. I hope that's your desire as well as we, by God's grace, go through the gospel of Luke together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your servant Luke who researched these things carefully under the direction of the Holy Spirit so that we could know you more fully. 
We pray that you'd give us the ability to live in obedience to you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.